This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on diversity training and the critical question of whether and how they can truly be effective. We're going to be taking calls along the way and welcome yours. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So give us a ring and let us know what's your organization doing and how do you feel about it? That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're especially curious because we know that diversity and inclusion within organizations is critically important, yet frustratingly hard to improve, which is why I couldn't be more excited to have two special guests on today's show, Catherine Milkman and Edward Chang, who I am lucky enough to call my colleagues. Katie is an award-winning and beloved professor here at Wharton, and Edward is a PhD candidate in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department. They're joining us today to talk about what we learned and what we didn't from a collaborative research project that I'm proud to say came out of Wharton People Analytics. Before we jump into it, though, I want to tell you a little bit more about each of them. Katie is the Evan C. Thompson Endowed Term Chair for Excellence in Teaching with a secondary appointment at Penn's Perelman School of Medicine. An engineer by training, her research draws on insights from economics and psychology to change consequential health, savings, and workplace behaviors for good. She was one of the original faculty co-directors of Wharton People Analytics and now co-directs the Behavior Change for Good initiative here at Wharton with Angela Duckworth. She's a frequent frequent contributor to the Washington Post, writing about the behavioral economics of everyday life. And she hosts the spectacular popular podcast, Choiceology with Katie Milkman, which demystifies the science of decision making. Edwards, the lead author on the paper that we're going to discuss today, The Mixed Effects of Online Diversity Training, which was just published by the Proceedings of the National Academy for Sciences, I'm proud to say. His research interests include diversity, discrimination, and behavior change. And prior to graduate school, he worked as a data scientist, and he graduated summa cum laude from Yale University with a degree in mathematics and philosophy. So, Katie, Edward, welcome to Women at Work. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. So before we talk about what we learned and what we still want to know, um, I'd like to share what this project was, this crazy 68-minute diversity training that we developed. Katie, can you kind of outline it for us? Sure, absolutely. So this project started quite a number of years ago, um, and actually Adam Grant was the one who really wanted to dive into diversity training with a a randomized controlled trial to test what works because there wasn't enough evidence to really tell us what can make effective change in organizations and change behavior. And I'd been interested in race and gender bias issues, so he sort of tugged me along with him to a couple of meetings with an organization that was open to trying to do something like this, something really ambitious, a big randomized controlled trial to test the efficacy of different kinds of training. So those were the origins of the project. And it it took on sort of a life of its own, as we talked about earlier today, Laura, <laughs> you were reminding me that I was pregnant when the, when the project started and then out on maternity leave when it really needed to take off. And we were so lucky that Edward had just begun the doctoral program as my advisee at, at Wharton and was super interested in these questions. And so we tapped him and said, hey, Edward, do you want to lead this? 
Uh, and he said yes, which was one of the best yeses I've ever gotten in my life. And he's done an amazing job taking this from just an idea to, you know, a, a series of, um, you know, some of the most interesting findings, I think, that are out there on diversity training. Absolutely. So, Edward, one of the things that I thought was so amazing as we watched this all unfold within People Analytics was to see the process of trying to wrap our heads around the idea of what we were trying to learn and then how we would go about creating a field experiment. Mm -hmm. So before we explain what its components were, because I think they were super fascinating, I actually learned a lot from each of those components as we were going through it. Um, Would you explain what is a field experiment? And when we talk about a lot of people, what are we talking about? Uh, so a field experiment is just uh, an experiment. So experiments generally just randomize people into different conditions. And in general, field experiment is kind of what we consider to be the gold standard for empirical research in that uh, we randomize people into a treatment or control. And so any differences we find afterward, uh, we can be pretty confident are due to the treatment. And it's important that's in the field because for something that we care about, like diversity and inclusion, uh, we really care about kind of the real world behaviors or the real world impact of whatever treatment we have. So in this case, in the field means with living, breathing employees at actual organizations. Yes, it's an actual workplace. It's an actual organization. Uh, It's not just people online or or it's not just students in a lab. At Wharton, for example, it's an actual organization, real workplace, real people's decisions. Okay, so Katie mentioned earlier that we did this in partnership with an organization who, for the record, stays anonymous. Talk to us about how what that partnership was like. How do you figure out, since you're going to do stuff on the employees in an organization, how do you map out what to do and how to do it responsibly? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a constant conversation. Uh, it was actually a really positive collaboration between uh, the researchers at Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania and our field partner. Uh, they provided a lot of support, a lot of really valuable guidance about kind of what sort of things would make sense for employees in their organization. Uh, We think that for a lot of things around diversity and inclusion, they may be context-dependent. And so it was really valuable to have their feedback and guidance about what they thought could be effective. And so collaboratively, we got to the point where we decided to build an online training experience. Kind of like a one-hour online course. Is that a fair way to describe it? Right. So we wanted to reach a really large population because one of the things that makes field experiments are uh, the way that, by the way, those are often referred to as just A-B tests. If anyone's sort of like still wrapping their head around field experiment, what is that? It's just a big A-B test. Um, And and the way you do those best is when they're big. So the more data you have, you know, we're data nerds here. So the more data you have, the better. And to go big and do a really big experiment often means to go digital. And so when we talk to our partners, we we all agree that that was really the right approach was to build this digital training rather than a program where we'd have to put a bunch of people in classrooms. Um, We would not be able to get the scale if we did something like that. And a lot of organizations are doing online diversity trainings. I'm sort of remembering when we were scoping out um, what was out there, we looked at a big, a big training program that's publicly available from Microsoft on diversity issues. I think Google has a bunch of online materials as well. And so we're sort of checking out different companies and what they've built. And we said, look, this is a common way of delivering diversity training. It's a way we can scale. So why don't we, why don't we think about starting there? Um, and it gave us a lot of experimental control because we wouldn't have to worry about training people to go into classrooms, say, and consistently deliver the same messaging. Instead, we could make sure that exactly the same words, exactly the same videos, exactly the same sound effects um, were experienced by everyone who went through our course. So it made both for an easily scalable intervention and an effective research tool. Exactly. Yeah. So it was sort of the perfect approach. Um, and, and we were really excited when we landed on that solution. <laughs> so. 
one of the places where I got, you know, got to see it up close was as we were building this tool itself. And one of the things I found so amazing, um, and, it, and it was funny because it just came forward like, of course, this is how we're doing it. But there was a lot of research behind what videos, what instructional text, the ideas that were presented in this training so that going back to the fact that it was A-B testing, the intention was that this was a useful piece of instruction. Whether or not it would have the desired outcomes was the question, but it was part of being responsible about doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Edward and um, others on our team, so in particular, um, thinking of um, Reb Rebe- Reb Rebelly. No, yeah. you, you pronounce his name properly. <laughs> I was about to say it wrong. Glad I paused. Um, and uh, I, I just get to call everybody by their first names. Uh, and, and Dina Gromay, who also did just a tremendous amount of work on this with Edward, um, really dove into what's out there, which is part of what brought us to, you know, see the Microsoft training and the Google trainings online. Um, Edward also sort of scoured the literature. He was already at that point, frankly, becoming an expert on what was known about uh, issues of diversity in the workplace because that was his area of academic interest. But he really scoured the literature for good examples. We wanted to make a science-based training that would share um, what we really know about what's going on in this situation. So it's very much grounded in, in scientific evidence. Maybe I'll turn to Edward to say a little bit more about how he chose some of the elements that went in. Yeah, so I mean, I think for us, it was really important to make sure we had all the information we presented in the training to be based in science. Uh, We are social scientists, and we want to make sure that everything we were saying or trying to teach people was rigorous. Uh, We also drew a lot of inspiration from interventions in other fields. So for example, we have like a kind of a dream team for this paper. Uh, For example, Angela Duckworth has done lots of amazing work in educational interventions. And so we actually looked at for example, a lot of the interesting educational interventions on things like how do you increase growth mindset amongst students? And we kind of took, uh, kind of cherry-picked from lots of different interventions in lots of different fields, kind of what are the best practices for trying to create an effective training or intervention? Yeah, and what was fascinating as somebody who, you know, I saw every part of it build. I wasn't part of the lit review or the science behind it. And what I saw was that the content that you were sharing Um, was amazingly useful in understanding factors that contribute to a lack of diversity or a lack of inclusion in the workplace. And the way that we went through that instruction was part of the magic of applying these behavior change and educational theories. Is that a fair way to explain it? Yeah, no, I think that's that's perfect. So tell me and share with our listeners the content that you were sharing. I thought it was really amazing the way, because I think the goal of it was to help the users understand where bias may present itself unintentionally. So could you walk us through what were some of the fundamental things you wanted to get across as the content that the user would learn? Yeah, so we started off by talking kind of what is one thing that we think kind of underlies a lot of bias or state or bias in the workplace? Uh, and we talked, we started off by talking at pretty, at a pretty cognitive level about stereotyping. And stereotyping isn't necessarily something that it's inherently bad. I think stereotyping in general gets a bad rap. But stereotypes are just things, uh, they're just ways that our mind kind of makes sense of all the information that we're bombarded with on a daily basis. And stereotypes aren't necessarily only about things like gender and race. You can have stereotypes about uh, for example, Wharton students or MBA <laughs> students. Uh, it can be essentially about any social category. And so we kind of start off by talking about how our brain just kind of naturally categorizes things, but how that can potentially sometimes lead us astray when we're making decisions about, for example, people uh, who have been marginalized historically in the workplace. Uh, we then present a lot of research 
finding evidence about how gender stereotypes or how stereotypes generally can negatively affect different groups in the workplace. Uh, we had people take an implicit associations test uh, to potentially get some insight into what potentially their own stereotypes are that they may hold. Uh, we then provided a lot of information, uh, information and strategies about how to overcome bias and stereotyping, if that was something people were interested in. Uh, and then we finally collected some survey questions for our own purposes to try, try to measure what the effects were of our training. That's beautifully summarized. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today, I am proud to say, are Wharton professor Katie Milkman, who co-directs the Behavior Change for Good initiative here at the University of Pennsylvania, and Edward Chang, PhD candidate in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department at the Wharton School, two members of our team who just published a new report on online diversity training, which is what we're talking about. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a ring, one eight four four wharton that's 844-942-7866. And we're to help make it real, and also because I think we can expand the educational impact of that work you did, um, talk to me about what some of those stereotypes are and where are the places in the workplace where it impacts unintentionally. Yeah, so one example that we talked about uh, in our training was uh, research on non-promotable tasks. Uh, so this is research by Linda Babcock and colleagues where in general, we find we expect women to be helpful. Uh, in general, we expect women to be kind of caring, nurturing, and generally helpful. And one way that this manifests itself in the workplace is that we kind of expect women to volunteer to w work on things that we, we now kind of know need to get done. So, for example, like if you're taking notes in a meeting, it's something that we know needs to get done but doesn't really advance anyone's career. And what Linda Babcock and her colleagues found was that essentially we expect women to do these non-promotable tasks uh, and we punish them if they don't. Uh, and that's one way in which women may actually end up being expected to do more of this work that doesn't contribute to their advancement in, the, in their careers or in the workplace uh, and may hinder their advancement. I, there was an example, I think it was in the training, where a woman talked about how many committees she's asked to serve on, a professor, and that in talking to a male professor in the same organization, he's not serving on those committees, which frees up lots of time and enables him to publish more and move up the tenure track that much faster because he's being that much more productive. So that simple thing of can you go to this meeting can actually really in some ways derail somebody's career while it's serving the organization that you work for. That's a great example. And in fact, the person who told the story in our training was Linda Babcock, and she was <laughs> telling the story of what kickstarted her research on this really important topic. So it was wonderful to have that audio um, component, that storytelling from her. And we did try to build in a lot of um, of storytelling so that the intervention wasn't just sort of dry reading of text, but rather watching videos, listening to people explain how they'd reacted to things. Um, there was an interactive quiz component. And so, you know, we didn't want it to be dry. We wanted to give it the best shot possible of really engaging people and working. It was what happens when you bring brilliant educators together who are also scientists because it became a totally engaging educational experience. Um, so in this process, you were introducing ideas like this, and there are some of them. We'll come back to them as we go through. But your goal was to see what was the impact of learning about these ideas? Would it change people's behavior? So tell me, how did you go about figuring that out? Uh, yeah, so in terms of looking at how we change people's behaviors, we 
tried a variety of different approaches. So one kind of advance about our experiment is that we actually did try to measure actual workplace behaviors. Well, a lot of research in the past kind of just focuses on maybe survey-based measures of people's attitudes or maybe their self-reported behaviors. But we were really interested in actual workplace behaviors that we could see. So not what you said you did or how you felt about it, but what you actually did. Yes. Um, So we had three main behavioral measures for this experiment. So the first one is we worked with our field partner to create uh, an informal mentoring program of sorts. That's what we what we conceptualized it as. Uh, it was an opportunity for employees to essentially invite their colleagues out for coffee that the company would pay for and in the spirit of creating a more inclusive workplace. So that was the first behavioral measure. Uh, the second behavioral measure was uh, an award recognition program, so kind of a peer recognition excellence. So uh, employees at this workplace were told about a new program where they could rec- recognize their colleagues for doing a great job on something, and we measured uh, who they chose to recognize for excellence. Uh, and then the last behavioral measure was what we call an audit study. And so what we did was we emailed everyone, all the employees, and we uh, asked them if they'd be willing to speak to an, a new hire at the firm for 15 minutes. Uh, but what we, we randomly varied whether or not we said that new hire was a man or a woman. And we looked at, are people essentially more willing to say yes to speaking to a new hire who's a man versus a woman? I think this is, was really one of the most brilliant things that you struck upon because these are, A, for anybody who's just encountering this for the first time, those things like asking someone out for coffee, creating a mentorship opportunity, or giving praise to somebody, um, not to mention who you're willing to make time for when it changes your schedule, um, is a reflection of who do you see, who do you value, who are you willing to make time for. So it's, a, I think, a brilliant way to test, is that changing? And it's also behaviors that it seems like the organization wanted to encourage anyway. Could you talk a little bit about how you worked with the organization to identify what are things that are going to help an experiment but are actually meaningful to an organization and that the organization cannot just tolerate but get behind? Yeah, no, this was one of the this was one of the areas we spent a tremendous amount of time on because it was critical to us not just to measure attitudes, which we did measure, by the way, at the end of the training, and which is how these things are typically evaluated, but to go beyond and go to behavior. So we spent a ton of time talking to our partners about different ideas for what we could do, what would feel authentic to their employees, what what they really valued, what were truly inclusive behaviors in the workplace that we could measure objectively. And, and so that's what led us to these three outcomes, this coffee connectivity program. Do you Uh, do you say, hey, yeah, I want to take another person out to coffee and I'd like to take a woman or I'd like to take a minority or are you going to take a member of the old old boys network to put (laughs) it in the worst possible way? Um, So so that was really a key one that jumped out. Um, And then they were very excited about this excellence program as well because they worry that maybe people aren't uh, promoting the right folks are awarding and recognize excellence in the right folks. So if we're worried about why aren't there more women at the top of organizations, which is a pervasive problem, then one of the reasons we might worry there aren't is because people aren't recognizing the excellence of women as much. So this was a way of getting at that key issue. So one was mentoring. Are women getting enough mentoring? Uh, Two is, are women getting enough recognition? And then uh, three was, as you said, who do you make time for? And that was where this audit study came in. So we really felt, uh, and so did our organizational partners, that, that these tapped into a bunch of the key ways we think women may experience 
and minorities as well, obstruction in their careers as they seek to rise in organizations. And so we're trying to tap into those. So I want to test something out. Um, as I understand it, this, I mean, A, this was an enormous organization. We invited how many people to participate in the field experiment? Over 10,000? Yeah, almost 11,000 people were invited, and then three thousand, over 3,000 did participate. And at an organization of this size and sophistication, while um, part of this experiment was identifying places where you could track behaviors that would be appropriate to the research project, that this was happening in an ecosystem where the diversity training wasn't the only thing that they were doing. This is part of a bigger ecosystem and a bigger effort to improve inclusion in the workplace, correct? Yeah. I mean, in general, part of the reason why this uh, organization was interested in working with us is because they did seem to care genuinely about trying to increase diversity and inclusion in their workplace. So this was one of the many efforts that they had uh, at the same time. Uh, Other things they were thinking about were things like uh, potentially changing policies to be more friendly towards parents or new parents. Uh, and this this was just one thing, part of many. Okay. And I think that's important, which we're going to probably come back to at the end of our conversation as well, which is how does diversity training, with whatever we've learned about it, which we haven't unveiled yet, plug into an ecosystem of really trying to change the overall culture and practices at an organization? And we were lucky enough to have a partner who was asking big questions and game to put some time and attention towards this. Absolutely. So how did you um, frame what you were trying to learn initially? We know that you know, when we think about it from the cheap seats, we take a diversity training and we want the workplace to be inclusive. But we know there are many steps in getting there. So what were the key things that you were trying to measure and change in this process? So uh, as Katie mentioned earlier, we measured both attitudes and behaviors. Uh, and Katie and I, we kind of come from uh, – a tradition where we really care most about people's behaviors. It's not just what people are saying. It's really, are people actually being more inclusive? That's why we focus so much on creating these real workplace programs that we thought tapped into these important uh, behaviors or constructs for advancing women and minorities in the workplace. Uh, But in general, past research and past theory about just generally for any sort of behavior, not even related to diversity or inclusion, has thought about kind of people's behaviors as a continuum where first people kind of need to have the right attitudes. They need to have the attitude, like, I want to do this behavior. And then they maybe develop intentions to say, like, yes, I will do this behavior. And then finally, they actually enact the behavior and actually do it. Um, And so we want to try to make sure that our measures kind of would be able to tap into this continuum, which is why we measured both attitudes at the end of training, uh, as well as trying to measure people's actual behaviors afterward. So it sounds like time was also a factor in this. How long after the diversity training um, were these Um, was the coffee invitation or the recognition component of it? Was it right afterwards? Was it weeks afterwards? Yeah. So uh, our recruitment period for the training, so this essentially is the the number of weeks that the training was available was about six weeks long. So for six weeks, the training was available. People took it from weeks one to six. At the end of the training for each person, that's when we did the survey measures. That's because that's when we had their attention. Uh, This coffee connectivity program People were emailed about that uh, three weeks after the end of the training being available. So that's essentially three to nine weeks after the training, depending on when people actually took the original training. Uh, about uh, another three weeks after the coffee program, that was when this recognition program happened. And then about, uh, I think, five weeks after that, uh, that was when we did this audit study and emailed everyone asking if they'd be willing to take time to speak to a new hire. And 
I think uh, a key thing that we haven't talked a lot about, but I want to highlight is that there was no ostensible relationship between any of these um, events. So people did not recognize there was there was no alert. This is a follow up on your diversity <laughs> training. Right. Would you like to mentor a woman? So um, as far as the employees are concerned, these are just normal activities going on in the course of their daily lives at the organization. They have no ostensible connection to the training. And that was really critical because if they had thought, oh, this is the way that they're testing to see if I've changed my behaviors, people would behave very differently. <laughs> uh, instead, they're just going about their usual lives. And we're checking to see, hey, did did this really change the way they they enact um, their daily routines at the organization? You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and very proud to have with us today Wharton Professor Katie Milkman, who co-directs the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, and Edward Chang, PhD candidate in the OID department here at the Wharton School. Um, have you guys out there taken diversity training? How did you feel about it? Did you feel like it changed your behavior? Give us a ring. We would love to hear from you. It's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So it's, I love hearing about this time delay. It's a testimony to why it was so important that the training itself was an effect, effective educational tool. They had to remember what they were exposed to and hopefully internalize it. Speaking of internalizing the, the things that you expose them to, in addition to introducing them to stereotypes, that the idea that we all have them and that it's a function of the brain that can be benevolent but can be dangerous if we're not aware of it. Um, one of the other things that was a part of it was about destigmatizing the stereotyping we do. Could you talk a little bit about what that's about and why it was important to include in here? So. One of the things we were worried about, and we talked a lot about as a team as we were developing this training, is that if we delivered the message in the wrong way, if we delivered it as a, hey, you know, take this test, for instance, about your own attitudes towards um, women in the workplace, and then we scored people and told them, hey, you seem to have some bias, it was going to feel like an accusation, like sort of a gotcha moment. And this is a challenge we all face in the classroom when we teach people about the limitations of um, human rationality, which is, by the way, what I study generally. You don't want the the way the students experience that kind of lesson to be, gotcha, you're a fool, right? No, nobody responds well to that. It leads to a lot of defensiveness. And it's also inaccurate because the reason we teach people about these patterns of behavior is that they're universal. So there's nothing wrong with someone, in a sense, for expressing some stereotypes or having holding some stereotypes it may be something we don't ever want them to act on and they never <laughs> want to act on but it's very human it's very normal and so we we wanted to avoid that reactance that backlash that might lead people to actually perhaps behave even worse in the future or uh, not to get excited about the tools we were giving them to overcome bias so to try to do that we uh, we included a bunch of messaging around this is normal. And and actually, I told a story about how I'd felt when I first learned that I was biased after taking this test uh, as a female faculty member at the Wharton School who thought of herself as uh, very pro-careers. I learned that I, for women, I learned that I was biased against women who had careers. And, and so that was how we tried to normalize it. So we have to take a short break. But when we get back, we're going to talk more about what this kind of compassionate, compassionate insightful research led us to discover. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I'll be back in just a minute with Women at Work here on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guests today are Wharton Professor Katie Milkman, who co-directs the Behavior Change for Good Initiative here at the University of Pennsylvania, and Edward Chang, PhD candidate in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department at the Wharton School. And they are key contributors. In fact, Edward is the lead author on a new paper on diversity training that we're discussing today. In our first half hour, we talked about some of the amazing science that was behind the ideas um, that were embedded in this training and the process of how they built it. And now we're going to talk more about what they learned in the process. So Katie, Edward, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks very much. It's really a treat for me. So as we talked about in the first half hour, um, we created this training, this hour-long Um, learning experience, like an online course that lasts for an hour, with the attention of could we expose people to ideas and principles that could get them to behave differently later on in the workplace? I mean, really the holy grail of diversity training. And um, we followed up with, could we call them, they were opportunities to apply what they had learned, right? Right. I would I would absolutely call it that. So uh, we followed up to see whether or not people would really change their behavior, whether they would mentor more women uh, through a, an informal coffee connectivity program. They could nominate other employees at their firm. They'd take them. They'd take them out for coffee. They could list their names on a form. Would they put more women's names? Would they put more minority names? We looked to see whether or not they would um, be more willing to nominate women and minorities to win awards in the workplace. And finally, we looked to see whether or not they'd be more willing to volunteer time to speak with a new employee who is a woman versus a man. So it's not just will they take it and will they complete it, but doesn't have an impact on their follow-up behavior. Exactly. And so with all this, and, and 3,000 people completed this process, correct? That's right. So that's a fair amount of data. More than 3,000. 3,016 people. Well, 3,016 3, people started the training. Oh, that's right. Not okay. all of them completed. What was it, 76% finished? Yeah, so uh, that's a little, pretty high rate. about 2,300 people actually finished the full hour-long training. Okay, that's yeah. a pretty sizable number. So what did you learn? What did the data look like as it was coming back? What were you discovering? Yeah, so uh, as Katie mentioned, we, so we, we measure attitudes at the very end of training. Uh, so first for attitudes, in general, we found that our training did significantly uh, improve people's attitudes towards women and minorities in the workplace. Uh, in particular, we found that this attitude change was really con- concentrated amongst employees who are located outside the U.S. Uh, so our field partners, we were working with a global sample. They have offices in a lot of different countries. Uh, and in general, I think perhaps because people in the maybe in the U.S. are more familiar with some of these topics like implicit bias or unconscious biases, it's kind of more in our current conversation. Uh, uh, they probably had uh, maybe less room to change their attitudes because they were kind of already more familiar with these topics. But people outside the U.S. who are maybe being exposed to some of these concepts for the first time, they seem to show more evidence of changing their attitudes. So let me just test this to make sure that when you're describing attitudes, I'm thinking of the the right way to apply that term and so our listeners can understand it. So are they attitudes such as um, a woman should be given an equal chance to be promoted or is it more granular than that? So we measure attitudes essentially with survey questions and we ask them to, for example, rate their uh, agreement with statements like women face the same amount women face more discrimination than men in the workplace. And we see, do people agree or disagree with these statements? Or, for example, 
uh, it's common to see women being treated in a sexist manner on television. Uh, and so we just kind of want to see how do people, how much do they agree or disagree with these statements like that? So that it's understandable to then think that a U.S. audience is exposed to these concepts and may already have internalized them, where other audiences coming from other cultures may not be as exposed to these ideas or have um, or be agreeing with them. Is that a fair way to interpret it? I think that's fair. In fact, one of the things that was most interesting when we sort of started breaking down the data into subgroups that we had said in advance we were particularly interested in, which included international versus U.S.-based employees and men versus women who took the training, one of the things we also looked at was um, keep in mind, because this was an A-B test, we not only had a group that took the training, we also had a group that didn't. So the group that didn't take the training, they were exposed. They they took another hour-long course that had no relation to issues of gender bias. Um, And so what we really were interested to see is how those two groups differed. But also we could look at baseline at the people who didn't take our diversity training and see what their attitudes looked like. And when we looked at these different subgroups, we actually saw the people who hadn't taken the diversity training, they had different kinds of attitudes when we looked at the U.S.-based versus international and men versus women in general, and this is maybe not going to shock anyone, and it's really consistent with what Edward was just saying, women tend to have more slightly more progressive or supportive, inclusive attitudes towards women at work than men did. And the same was true for um, U.S.-based folks relative to international folks. So mm-hmm. people who were taking the training and were overseas had slightly less supportive attitudes towards women than those who were taking them in the U.S. And what's interesting is who are training affected the most was exactly the people who basically started with slightly less supportive attitudes. So in other words, you were able to create the most change in attitude for those people who lagged the farthest behind Exactly, having already internalized these ideas. That's exactly right. And actually, Edward did some really interesting analyses where he broke the groups down even further, more into more granular groups. I think we had, what, 86 different countries that were represented in the training. He actually looked at the average attitudes of the participants in the training who didn't see any training, right? The ones who who didn't get our diversity training. What were their average attitudes? So the baseline, if you will. And he saw this correlation in how much things moved um, across those 86 countries. The, the more supportive you were at the beginning, the less your attitude moved, essentially. That's one way to think about it. And so in a way, if the only goal was to move attitude farther ahead than it was, that might not have been successful. But it sounds like you were able to move attitude where attitude needed to change the most. Yeah. And I guess one thing I, I'd want to point out is that, I mean, in general, employees at this uh, at our field partner had very progressive attitudes overall. Uh, I've used similar, uh, we call them scales, essentially ways to measure attitudes uh, on different populations. And even the people outside the U.S. had very supportive progressive attitudes. It's just that, for, for example, women in the U.S., it's like, they are so progressive and supportive already that we kind of can't measure any change because they're, <laughs> right. they're, they're already really much, really bought in. But when I think about it, it's something that we've talked about both seriously and jokingly here on Women at Work is um, that we want people to want to see diversity and inclusion at the workplace because A, it's the right thing to do and B, it's what's best for the company. But there, the idea is to get people through the door of embracing it. And that sometimes it, it, what's not important is how we get them through the door, but that they get through the door. And, and, you know, we hear from a lot of men sometimes that they wake up when they have a daughter. 
And that can be, you know, that can open their eyes in a profound way. Um, I'm very relieved to see that there's hope, that there's a way we can get people through the door without having to become the parent of a daughter first. <laughs> so you'll it's actually with... teachable. <laughs> Edward and I have had conversations where we were like, could we develop some sort of simulation of becoming the parent of a daughter? <laughs> <laughs> we literally had that conversation on yeah. a walk to work once, right? I'm not making that <laughs> up. Because well, it's interesting because people, I mean... Almost everyone has a mother, but they don't seem to view their mothers in the same way as they view their daughters. And so we're trying to think, how do we get people to think that they have daughters? Yeah, it's that funny way. I think they, as a mom, we're always thought of as the one who protects them as opposed to the one who needs protecting. Mm -hmm. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Sarrow. I am talking with the amazing Katie Milkman and Edward Chang. Katie co-directs the Behavior Change for Good Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania and was part of the Wharton People Analytics team when we developed this amazing project. And Edward Chang was really a major lead on this and the lead author of the paper that just came out. He's a PhD candidate in the Operations Information and Decisions Department at the Wharton School. So guys, thank you. I'm excited about all of this. So, okay, we've hooked in. We actually, this may say, we can change attitudes. We can move the needle on getting people that weren't thinking a certain way to start to consider um, a new way of looking at their own biases and the people around them. What happened when you tried to change behavior? So what's interesting is that kind of we just talked about how the most attitude change we saw was amongst these groups who kind of had the least supportive attitudes to begin with. But when we look at who changed their behaviors as a result of our training, it really does seem to be actually the people who had the most supportive attitudes to begin with. And that, for example, one of the main groups, the biggest behavioral effect we saw as a result of our training was actually in women in the U.S. Uh, choosing to go on these informal coffee connectivity mentoring chats more with other w women, uh, they were the ones to kind of show the biggest change in behavior. And women in the U.S. were also the group to kind of have the most supportive attitudes toward women to begin with. Okay. This is super interesting, and I want to tease some of this apart. So some of this comes back to something that you were saying before, Katie, and this was a video that was part of the training of helping women recognize where we have our own unconscious biases that are impacting other women. Could you explain it a little more? Sure. So, um, so... We actually had everyone who was part of the training go through an implicit associations test, which is a test of your associations between, um, well, it can be between any two things. But in this case, we were looking at how strongly did people associate women in careers versus um, women and the home uh, compared to the strength of their associations between men and careers and men and, and being at home. And after we gave that test, we showed a video that talked to them about the fact that uh, even women have these implicit biases. So I actually, what, was it a video? Actually, I think it was an audio clip. <laughs> I didn't want to be videotaped. I told the story of how when I first took this um, implicit associations test and found that I had these negative attitudes towards women at work that were unconscious, I was really shocked because I'm a woman who's working and, and does research <laughs> on women at work. And I just could, I was sort of startled by it. So we were trying to explain and normalize the fact that it's common, not only for, for these unconscious biases to affect um, those who aren't members of the target group, but also those who are. So women still hold unconscious biases against other women. We wanted to make that uh, clear that that was common and also try to reduce defensiveness when people learned about it. So this goes back to the destigmatization that we were talking about in the first half hour of trying to recognize that this is a dynamic that happens, not to be ashamed about it, but to become aware of it because it is something that can change. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And so this was the group then whose attitudes didn't need to change, but their behavior changed? Yeah, that's correct. But one of the really interesting things, so when we had designed this behavioral measure, we thought about it as uh, essentially an opportunity for employees to kind of provide informal mentoring to their more junior colleagues. So we hope that, you know, you take this diversity training, you learn about potential gender bias and gender stereotyping or other sorts of bias and stereotyping in the workplace, and then that kind of makes you want to be more inclusive towards other women and minorities. But what we, after we kind of ran this program, our field partner kind of prompted us to look they've kind of heard anecdotes that actually people are using this program not to kind of provide mentorship, but actually to seek out mentorship from the more senior colleagues. Really? Yeah. Uh, And so one of the things that when we actually looked back and then we reanalyzed some of the data, we did in fact find that really this effect was actually seemed to be driven by women in the U.S. kind of leaning in more, kind of taking more initiative, being more proactive, and seeking out more mentorship using this program. That's amazing. When you looked back then, was that part of what you were trying to educate towards or was it just a happy accident? I don't know if it was exactly a happy accident. <laughs> um, it was certainly something that uh, it was It was definitely not, I would say, our goal. So we thought we were trying to get people to help others and be more inclusive rather than to uh, change the way that they looked out for themselves and and we haven't shared all of the takeaways from our <laughs> findings yet but I will I'll get a little closer to sharing all of them and say this was really the biggest behavioral effect we detected by far was women looking out for themselves more that was our biggest effect on behavior we had a lot of effects on attitude but largely our training did not shift behavior the main behavior it shifted was making women more conscious that they needed to look out for themselves it's it, i'm gobsmacked by it because I think it's super exciting and that it could have that kind of effect as um, kind of the surprise gift that came from this. And I'm wondering if it was that it um, made them feel safe. Did it make it feel what was driving that change in them? When I think about the training, um, it did reinforce for me, and I probably went through it because just for full exposure, I got very involved in the design of the slides and the images. Um, and I probably took it, I don't know, 15 times. And, um, but it was... Did it change your behavior, <laughs> Laura? That's the real question. Yeah, Have you I been leaning in more at work? <laughs> you got to ask Kate and Adam, but probably yes. Um, it's that it gave me a vocabulary for understanding and be able to talk about the things that I saw around me every day that I kind of knew to be true but couldn't quote the science behind it. And I swim in this space a lot, obviously. Um, but that if it val- if part of it was validating for the user that you're in a landscape that's flawed. And so understand that that landscape is flawed and it's not a reflection on you. It, it, We hope that that's what happened. I mean, one of the interesting things about these kinds of field experiments, these A-B tests that are done with participants in the wild um, where we, you know, we aren't going and interviewing people after the fact is we don't have a lot of visibility into exactly why we see the outcomes we see. That's a limitation of this methodology. So we have to speculate just as you're speculating. Um, my speculation would be very similar to yours. I'm curious to hear what Edward thinks. But um, my my reaction when we saw this was, well, it seems like what we did was maybe we made the women a little bit more nervous, actually. Um, <laughs> and, and we were like, hey, look out. There's stuff that's not right in the world. Um, and, and they knew that, obviously. But maybe we just made it a bit more salient. And they started 
they started looking out for themselves more. So it could have been what you pointed out, which is that people said, um, you know, I ha- now I understand better what's going on. I sort of have the language and, and the way to think about it. Or it could have been anxiety that we provoked. <laughs> uh, but I think either is honestly good news because it did get women to lean in more. It did get women looking out for themselves more. And that's part of what we need to change in the workplace if we're going to if we're going to change outcomes, right? It, it's got to come. Ideally, we want both. We right. want men being more inclusive towards women. We want uh, everyone being more inclusive towards everyone, frankly. But if people look out more for themselves, that's one way we can move things forward. It's true. By articulating something like the impact of performance reviews um, on someone's career and when they're gendered, say, um, how that plays out in someone's career, um, you're certainly going to look at your next performance review through a different lens to see is there gendered language in there or whatever the examples right. are that are offered up yeah. in the training. And one thing that's interesting is when we were able to see both kind of the gender, for example, for these women in the U.S. who are choosing uh, who they're going to try to actually seek mentorship from, we know both the gender of who they're trying to seek leadership from as well as kind of their seniority relative to each other. So, for example, we know that actually a lot of women in the U.S. were specifically seeking out mentorship from more senior women, okay. which could help us understand that it's not just they're looking for m- more mentorship because they're like, oh, I need more mentorship. It's potentially I need mentorship and I need mentors who can help me navigate uh, a workplace that maybe has gender bias in it or in a society where there is structural gender inequality. That's a good point, because while I want to take the total sunshine and rainbow lens on this, um, it it does make clear that you're in an, a, a deeply imperfect environment and that there are allies through within that environment that you can turn to for support and advocacy. That's right. And we actually, we weren't looking so much at, did you, did women look for, did they nominate more people to have coffee with them and go to these mentorship conversations? We were looking at, do they nominate more women? And the, uh, the big answer was yes, but the surprising part was they were women who were senior to them rather than junior to them. Though actually both moved. It's just that senior reaching out for senior mentoring was really the big, big driver. That's amazing. But that it stayed, it, it went along gender lines. Right. That's and, right. And well, actually, I don't know. Did we do you mean, know the answer to the other question? <laughs> so, 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 so they're looking for more senior mentorship regardless of gender. But it, it is not it's not just I mean, in general, at workplaces like these, and it's very common for most senior leadership to be men. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these uh, a lot of environments are still male dominated, especially as you go. Uh, to more senior levels. And so we found that they were looking for more senior mentorship in general, but there's still a significant effect of seeking out more female mentors in particular. I'd also be curious about um, the mechanism itself that was used to to ask for mentorship, because I see when we... I encounter, fortunately, it's one of the gifts of being at Wharton, all these brilliant, ambitious young women who are eager to have mentorship and reach out for it. And we hear from a lot of senior leaders that they do love to mentor, but the way that a senior woman will look at mentorship and a way a junior woman will, will be a little different structurally. That for senior women, um, it's who emerges that you see that you want to mentor and that you see has talent and that you know you can make a difference for and with that fits into the work that you're doing in a way that's natural and sustainable. It's almost like finding true love in a way. It's like there are special relationships that emerge that way. Um, and that's different than when somebody says, please come mentor me. They may be looking for that kind of unique relationship, but it may be that you can coach them, but you can't just step into that role naturally. Um, and it sounds as if 
in this model that was used at our field partner, there was the request because there was the mechanism. But also, did those senior women say yes? So as this is a really great point you're making. It actually highlights a limitation of the study, and there are many limitations. But one of them is that we were only looking at who you ask to have coffee with you for a mentoring date that's going to be sponsored by the organization. I don't know if we have any evidence or data on who said yes. We sort of assumed that most of these <laughs> requests would in some way be accepted because uh, that seemed to be consistent with the culture of the organization. But we were really just focused on that first step. We don't know do would these they become lasting. The ask? That's right. We don't know if these would become lasting relationships, if they would be truly valuable. We were just saying you you get a form, you get a free coffee. We're going to sponsor it. Who do you ask to be your coffee date on this mentoring, inclusive mentoring program? And, and and the number of women that were asked increased as a result of our training, which is what we were looking for. Um, so that's it's, it is very limited. And I do think that's sort of a, an important thing to note about this research. We're really proud of it. We think it advanced knowledge tremendously, but it left many more questions unanswered than uh, than it sort of answered in the broad scope of things. I isn't that part of the point of good research? Yes, is absolutely. that we know just that questions more to doors. ask next. Yes, so. Um, were there any other findings that were important to you that we didn't go over? Uh, so one of the really interesting findings, uh, so there are actually two versions of our free training. So one was specifically about gender bias and gender stereotyping. And then the other version was uh, about bias and stereotyping against people of many different social categories. So for example, besides just talking about gender, we talked about age and obesity and race uh, and sexuality. Uh, and one of the things we were curious about is, does a diversity training that's only focused about gender stereotyping, gender bias, does it potentially have positive effects towards people's attitudes and behaviors towards other marginalized groups in the workplace, for example, racial minorities? Uh, and so one of the things we actually found was that, at least in the U.S., where we're able to uh, measure, uh, we essentially know the race of people who were selected, for example, through this coffee program and through this award recognition or peer recognition program, we did find that the training that was focused entirely on gender bias and gender stereotyping also seemed to lead people to engage in more inclusive behaviors towards racial minorities in the workplace. That's pretty fabulous. Yeah. So, I mean, it suggests that when we're talking about debiasing efforts, that there may be these, what we call in academia, kind of these positive spillovers. So you might be trying to target or reduce people's biases towards one group. And in the process, you might actually also be reducing their biases towards other groups. It's really amazing because this is in two different instances. You had kind of surprising results that um, showed that there was value to this tool, even if it didn't. But that one of the lingering questions is one tool does not change attitude and then behavior for everybody. I think that the key takeaway from our research, um, well, I'd say there's two key takeaways. If I wanted listeners to remember, like, what, what did we find? One is um, we really didn't change behavior across the board. We really hoped to. We moved attitudes across the board, but behavior across the board didn't move. Okay. So, um, so I think that means, you know, these one-off, one-time diversity trainings that we really hoped would change everything – they, they're not enough. It just wasn't enough. And, you know, it was designed by a bunch of really talented people, if I do say so myself, <laughs> with a lot of a lot of love and care and, and input from um, from outside. And, and, you know, and it wasn't enough to change behavior uh, for the most part. The second key takeaway was the behavior it did change 
largely uh, had to do with getting women to look out for themselves more. And I think that's really interesting and surprising. Um, the spillover effect was sort of my would be my third takeaway that it's it's really interesting and surprising, actually, that a gender bias training can lead to changes in attitudes and behaviors towards minorities that are positive. It is really encouraging. So with the roughly two minutes that we have left, for organizations who are desperate to see change happen, um, they've put a lot of energy into a single tool. What are other things that organizations could be doing, do you think, while we wait for researchers to crack the code? Uh, so there is promising research about uh, potential ways to change, for example, hiring processes or promotion processes to reduce the effects of bias and stereotyping. So, for example, Eric Ullman has really interesting research suggesting that when people should kind of establish their hiring criteria for positions in advance. And if they establish hiring criteria in advance, they're less likely to rely on stereotypes when they actually make hiring decisions. Uh, similarly, uh, Iris Bonet at the Harvard Kennedy School mm -hmm. has really great research uh, showing that when people, when you evaluate candidates jointly, as in you see multiple candidates at the same time and kind of can look or compare across candidates, you're less likely to rely on stereotypes than if you kind of see candidates one at a time. Uh, and make yes or no decisions that way. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to have Iris on the show. And her book, I think, is like it should be on every hire, every hiring manager's bookshelf. It's really amazing. We love it. We absolutely <laughs> love it. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but And I think her book makes a really key point, which is what Edward is saying as he highlights this research, which is um, we need to change the structures of the way people are making decisions in organizations to have a big impact. And that, uh, you know, a one-off diversity training, while a great thing to do, is not enough clearly. But you guys are doing work every day that is helping us understand this more and how to behave, how to change behavior for good on multiple fronts. So with that, Katie, if people want to find out more about the work that you're doing. They can visit our website, the Behavior Change for Good Initiative. I will just suggest Googling it, uh, which <laughs> Angela Duckworth and I co-direct, re which really was a spinoff of this project because we realized we wanted to find the ways to make enduring behavior change in organizations, uh, not just around race and gender, but but all sorts of behaviors that need to change. So they're on it. Check out their website. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, thank you for listening. And to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Jeff Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and keep learning. Yes, it's Nothing left to hurt its side and will shine. Yes, will shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.